Let the haters hate. Ignore them. Uproot the haters around you. Haters don't deserve one second of your valuable attention. This is the advice on offer to us at a time when so much that goes on in public conversation is seen as hate. You're either the hated or the hater. And at any one time, you might be viewed as both. Such is the polarization we're seeing in almost every sphere of life. Division down tribal lines, which has us move away from those we disagree with, leaving those others lumped together as haters, leaving us segregated in our own echo chamber. Get away from the haters. Stick with your lovers. Perhaps you've noticed how quickly this moves on to haters hate because I got what they ain't. I've seen it spelled out like this. Ignore the haters, train as hard as you can, and show them you're better, stronger. That's the ease with which we return hate for hate. Nothing comes easier to us. And who of us doesn't want to get on with simply loving our lovers, content with such ordinary, commonplace, everyday love? Well, in this sermon series, we're asking the question, who is your teacher? The invitation is for us to make Jesus our teacher. Here in Luke chapter 6, a special name is used for a person, any person, who comes to sit at Jesus' feet, listening attentively to his words, looking to learn from him how to live their lives. Such a person is called a disciple. Jesus has already taught his disciples this. Verse 22. In this world, they will be hated, excluded, insulted, even rejected. Why? Not because you're a particularly disagreeable person. You'd only have yourself to blame if you are. These disciples will be hated, verse 22, because of the Son of Man. Hated precisely because of who their teacher is and what their teacher teaches. Ignore the haters. Well, that's not what Jesus teaches us here. Instead, he says, verse 27, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those 
who curse you. Pray for those who ill-treat you. Instead of reactively moving away from them, Jesus would have us proactively move towards our haters. And we see here in these verses that the call isn't a return, isn't to return hate with hate. The call is to return hate with love. We're being called out way beyond that commonplace everyday love that is merely for those who love us. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill-treat you. The disciple who has come to sit at Jesus' feet, to listen to what he says. As we noted last Sunday, this is someone who recognizes their poverty. Verse 20. This is someone acutely aware of their own flaws and failings, not considering themselves better or stronger than their hater. They may even know themselves to be far worse. This is therefore someone who, taking no moral high ground, finds themselves in the right starting place for moving towards an enemy in a way that doesn't seek to crush them. But still, blessing them? What love would enable this? Here in these verses, let's note two things about the kind of love this is. It is a love that is undeserved, verses 29 to 31. It is also a love that is unconditional, verses 32 to 35. Firstly, Jesus teaches a love that is undeserved. Verse 29, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. This is a kind of love that requires us to stop doing the maths, to stop calculating the cost of our action. Jesus gives us, in quick succession, three examples of this undeserved love at work. In the face of insult, theft, and need. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. Jesus has in sight here those who insult us. We're to expect that people will do. And when someone has dealt us a particularly harsh insult... How has that felt? Perhaps like a slap around the face? Now, 
the context here is one in which the insulted person has the freedom to now walk away. So, this could be a colleague in your workplace doing the insulting. How do you respond? You could simply move away from them. You could make it so that you steer clear of the staff canteen so that you're never in the place of hearing that colleague's insults ever again. You could do that. And at times you may need to. But you could, having been slapped on one cheek, turn to them the other also. You could keep moving towards that colleague pursuing a different relationship with them, even though more insults may come your way. That is, you could show them undeserved love. Now, what's always important, and what's particularly important with words as provocative as these, is that we Don't lift them out of context and stamp them on a fridge magnet. The context here is one in which the insulted person has the freedom to walk away. This is not a situation where, say, a person is at the receiving end of some abuse which they are not free to walk away from. In the face of any sustained abuse, the message is get out of there, not stay in. Then, if someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Jesus has in sight here the thief who steals from us. A coat may not seem a big deal to you and I, but think of an item that is particularly valuable and precious to you. Maybe even indispensable to you. The idea is of this being taken from us by force. Do you then go on the defensive so that you forever put yourself out of reach of that person's thieving hands? Or do you decide to keep moving towards this acquaintance, pursuing a different relationship with them? That is not withholding your shirt from them. Taking the risk of losing this also In this way, you would be showing them undeserved love. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Now, either of those haters, the one insulting you or the one stealing from you, have come by hard times, and now they're knocking at your door. Have they not taken enough from you already? But it's these who Jesus now has his sights on as he says, give away freely to these.
Often, when we give to aid someone in need, we are aiding those who we believe merit our help. The more they seem to merit it, the more aid they get. The kind of love Jesus is calling us to here operates outside of a system of merits. It's a love that has no favorites. It's not reserved for the deserving. It's love for the undeserving, even the ill-deserving. The principle undergirding all of these examples comes there in verse 31. Do to others as you would have them do to you. It's our poverty, our flaws and failings that we most have in common with anyone. At the end of the day, the hater and the hated really are the same. And their deepest need is your deepest need. Secondly, Jesus teaches a love that is unconditional. Verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Again, we are being called to a kind of love that requires us to stop doing the maths. Only now in a different register. Not to stop calculating the cost, but to stop calculating the credit. What we'll get back from our actions. Here Jesus gives us three illustrations which help highlight this further distinctive of the love that we are called to practice. It is one that comes without conditions. It's never a good thing when any of our relationships become transactional. But sadly, many of them are just that. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. If you love those who love you, what credit is that? Those who love you, What you invest in that person, they will invest back in you. A neat balance sheet. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that? None of us like to be a debtor. As soon as someone does something good for you, you're eager to do some good in return. The language we use is very telling. I'll pay you back, we say. 
We can't do that immediately. It's, I owe you one. Our balance sheet will be kept in check. Then verse 34. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? The idea here isn't simply that that having lent £100, you're expecting £100 back. Rather, this is the person who, having come to another's aid in their time of need, now has them on a kind of retainer. If in the future they need that person to come to their aid, the expectation is that they will. The expecting to be repaid in full of verse 34 is... I did you a favor way back when. Now I'm calling that favor in. Such transactional love and good deeds. That's all very commonplace and every day. The strings attached to it are thinly disguised. But the love Jesus is calling us to is so much broader and deeper. So much greater, tougher, harder than the transactional love illustrated here. If we love on the condition that others love us in return, we will find ourselves loving only a very select few. But a love freed from that condition that expects nothing in return, is a love that can spill out to anyone and everyone. Yes, even those who are not inclined to love us in return, even those who choose to hate us. Is there anything for me in this? Well, here's what will then be to our credit. Jesus says, Verse 35, love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Our reward, what is it? in displaying both a love that is undeserved and a love that is unconditional, we will be displaying the family likeness. This will show that we are legitimate, not illegitimate children of the Most High. There's our reward to know that we truly are royalty in the kingdom of God. These days of national mourning are proving an education in monarchy, for me at least. Our late queen, and now our new king, they don't wear the crown 
by virtue of those who voted them in. And that means they don't wear the crown simply for those who love them. They wear it just as much for those who hate them. Our king, he doesn't have the luxury of ignoring the one and sticking with the other. And not infrequently will that involve crossing the room, choosing to move towards and shake the hand of those he very well knows are his enemies. If you're a disciple of Jesus this morning, you're under a similar charge. As the Most High is kind to the ungrateful and wicked, so must we be. How? Well, it wasn't so very long ago that you and I hated Jesus Christ. We were among those who excluded and poured insults upon him. We rejected him. We were not unlike so many in that crowd here, gathered around Jesus as he taught, or, or those crowds later gathered around Jesus on the road to the cross. In Luke 23, we read of the rulers and the soldiers mocking him, and the other criminals hurling insults at Jesus. They stole his clothes, both his coat and his shirt. And by the end of the ordeal, if they hadn't taken enough already, Jesus has freely given them all that belonged to him, his very life. You may wonder how it could ever be possible for the Most High to be kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. It's because of this. At the cross, Jesus' haters did their worst, and he took their very worst upon himself only to give them his very best in return. That's how it's possible for God's kindness to, to flow to the wicked. The only way it's possible. Here in Luke 6, it's the poor who are truly listening to Jesus. Those aware of their flaws and failings, those who have come to him in all weakness with empty hands, to these, Jesus now says, verse 20, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. We are blessed by the first of all the riches stored up in Christ being made available to us. It begins with the forgiveness of all our hatred and rejection of him. That's the promise of unconditional love at work in the lives of the undeserving. Why should that stop with you and I? It mustn't. Verse 28, bless those who curse you. 
Pray for those who ill-treat you. As we ourselves have been blessed, so we want that same blessing for others. No strings attached, but one of the best ways in which we can love our haters is to pray for them. Indeed, we'll never move towards our haters with the right love if we're not first bringing them to Jesus in prayer. Who knows? Who knows? Those same who today hate Jesus might tomorrow be counted among his disciples. It's a change that could happen for anyone. So here's the promise. As we take to heart and put into practice this teaching of Jesus. It's there in the last verse we heard read. Verse 38. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus sends us out with the highest calling when it comes to how we are to love. And it is daunting. It's good to know that Jesus doesn't send us out ill-equipped for the task in the moment. We don't have to do the maths tallying up what's to our cost and what's to our credit before we act. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So, this week, which room do we need to cross? Whose hand do we need to reach out to shake we may surprise ourselves as much as we surprise them. Amen.